enjoy that uh, section of Romans. I enjoy all the sections of Romans. They're all good. Romans 3, 27, okay? So what is the application of that last paragraph? One application. Then what becomes of our boasting? And what's the answer? It is excluded. Romans 3, 27, right? What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. The way that God has worked through Jesus excludes all human pride. All right, now, I want to do a little bit of thinking about the, how this section unfolds. Okay, so Romans 3, 21 to 26. Romans 3, 27 to 31. Okay, look at those two paragraphs. So 321 to 26, 327. Actually, not just 327 to 31, but the whole thing. 321 to 26, 327 through the end of chapter 4. Okay. What are the common themes? What I'm going to suggest, and I'm not the only one that does this, but 321 to 26 is like really concise. Okay. Very thorough, very concise. 327 through the end of chapter 4 like unpacks the big ideas of 321 to 26 over the course of a chapter. Okay? So what do you see in 321 to 26 that is then developed in the next chapter, 327 to 425? What do you see? Yeah, so justification by faith alone is what he talks about in 321 to 26, and then he will expand on that through 327 to 425, especially from the life of whom? Of Abraham. Okay? All right, what else? That there's no distinction, that this is true for everybody. That's theme in 321 to 26. And then he will expand on that in 327 to 425, especially through the life of whom? Of Abraham. This idea that right standing with God does not come through the law, but it was testified to by the law and the prophets. He will go after that like in, in the next chapter. And the focus on Christ's sacrificial death for us as the key to all of this, 321 to 26, that'll be where he ends chapter 4. When he talks about Jesus who was handed over for our sins, probably alluding to Isaiah 53 in the story. Okay? All right, now, let's look at 327 to 31. So 327. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I want to ponder those uses of law. Okay? That's a lot of law in a couple of verses. So obviously human boasting is excluded by the gospel. Why? Because what are you going to boast about? What do, what, what do we do? Sin? Mess everything up? Trust in somebody better than us? There's not a whole lot for us to boast about. So the way that God has worked in the gospel makes it so that our only boast is in God. Like our only boast is in Jesus. Like it's, God is not going to have us 
standing before him someday boasting about ourselves. <laughs> like he has made sure of that uh, through the way that he has worked in the gospel. But Paul says, by what kind of law? By a law of works, no, but by the law of faith. What does he mean by law in that text? <clears throat> when Paul says law in general, what would you think he's talking about? Just what, when he, when he, if you just saw, read a text and, and there was a use of the word law, I would think Paul is talking about the law of Moses. That is by far his normal use of law. But when I read this text, and he says, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. There's three uses of law in the ESV there. Are all of those in reference to the law of Moses? By what kind of Mosaic law? By the Mosaic law of works? No, but by the Mosaic law of faith. I'm not sure. Some people do think that every use of law actually refers to the law of Moses, even all of those. There's some ways you can try to explain that, but I don't think that makes a lot of sense. So what do you think he means? By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. What does he mean by law? Okay, okay. So there's different ways you could take this. What I would start with is that the, the word law, just like in our day, can have multiple uses. Like there's a lot of different ways you can use the word law. So, so if I say, um, you know, when I, well, assuming, I guess, assuming that the world is round, I don't know if that, we're going back to that, but assuming that if I jump and I come back down, <laughs> um, what would I attribute that to? What would I say? Why does that happen? We would say gravity. We would say the law of gravity. What do I mean by that? The law of gravity. Like, like, like law in that sense is like this just like principle. Like this is how thing works. How things work. Okay. Uh, if I say, you know what? I'm getting old and my body is breaking down and you will get old and your body will break down and my car is getting old and it is breaking down. Everything in the world is breaking down. Why? We, uh, it, usually I, I've heard this called the second law of thermodynamics or something, like that everything is like breaking down, okay? So we use this as a, this use, use of law. I say, so uh, I was outside the other day and I saw this guy and he was breaking the law. What do I mean by that? In that sense, I'm probably talking about some sort of law code. You know, like law code in Otis, okay? Or uh, if I'm in church and I say, hey, we've all broken the law. What am I probably talking about? God's law, law of Moses, something like this. Okay, so, so there's just a lot of variety in how we can use the word law today. You have the same flexibility in Paul's day with the use of the, of the Greek word namos. I think Paul makes various plays on words. Like he, he likes to use a lot of the same word in a short amount of time to kind of play off of that word and its different senses sometimes. So I think this is just part of his, how good of a writer he was. He likes to, and, and I think you'll see this later, like in Romans chapter seven, you could look there right now, look at chapter seven. And uh, just, I think a really good example of this is in 721 through 25, someone want to read that? 721 to 25? Okay, that's a lot of law, right? That's like 10 uses of the word law uh, in that section. So or what's he doing? I think he's playing off the word law. He's using it in 
some different senses. Some of those uses of law refer to the law of Moses, but I don't think all of them do. Like when he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil uh, lies close at hand. I don't think he's saying, so I find it to be the Mosaic law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. Like I think there's, he's playing, I find this like rule, I find this principle that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. And he also uses law in sense of power. Like there's this like, uh, I see another law in my members waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. Like that maybe this is like law in sense of like some sort of power or authority kind of thing, which is also a, under the umbrella of law. So, so anyway, I think that Paul makes plays on words. I think that's happening in this text. You go back to chapter three, verse 27. He says, and what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works, like by the principle of works. Is that what excludes boasting? No, that would not. Like if, if God works where we work and we get something for it, that would not exclude our boasting, would it? Like if I just work and I get rewarded for it, I would be able to boast about that. But what is it that excludes human boasting? It is the law of faith. It is the principle of faith, that I trust someone better than me. That's what excludes human boasting. And he says in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law of Moses, which is, I think, what he's just argued, that, that we trust in Christ. Uh, we do not rely on the works of the law. And that's why we can't boast. And again, he comes back to this idea in verse 29 that if we got right standing with God through works of the law of Moses, what would be true? It would only be available for Jews or for those connected to the law of Moses. So he says in verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, he's the God of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. I don't think there's much difference between by faith and through faith there. He's just saying, look, there's only one God. This is like the foundational Jewish belief. <laughs> there's only one God. Therefore, he is the God of all people, of all the human beings that there are in the world. And he has made a way to justify all people in the same way, through faith. So verse 31, do we then overthrow the law? That there I would think law of Moses. Do we then overthrow the law of Moses by this faith, by what I teach? Do you think Paul overthrows the law of Moses by what he teaches? Sometimes it feels that way. But Paul says, no. Paul's own view about Paul and the law is I do not overthrow the law of Moses. Paul's own view about Paul and the law is I uphold the law of Moses. Do you think he does? When you read Paul and somebody asks you, what does Paul do with the law of Moses? Would your first answer be Paul upholds it? So in what way does Paul uphold the law of Moses? You'll notice in this text, he does not answer that. He just claims that. Okay? You have to fill in the details of how he does that from the rest of his writings. So from the rest of Romans and, and other places. So <clears throat> this is, there's, there's nothing that's going to be in that verse that tells you exactly how Paul upholds the law of Moses. But yet he is confident that he does. So how does he do that? Yes. Yeah, so I... So I think there's a question of like, how do you know if he's playing off the word law? And I think 
my, my answer to that is, prob is, is primarily, he's using the word law a lot in a short amount of verses, and he's, and he's setting two laws in contrast to one another. Like those are signs that he's using law in different senses. But when he says, for we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, I think that's clear that he's back to talking about the law of Moses you know, in, in that text. Because the phrase, the works of law, that's a standard phrase for Paul to talk about the wor works of the law of Moses. So I really think the play on words is only in 327. When he says, by what kind of law? And that, that question itself shows you he's, he's not using the law of Moses there. Like, by what kind of law? by a law of works or by the law of faith. That's where I see the play on words. And then he comes right back to talking about the law of Moses. He says, we hold that the person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then when he asks the question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? On, no, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Uh, yeah, I just, I just think pretty much everybody would, you know, who's written on it would agree that he's back to talking about the law of Moses in that text, but yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, th I have to think through like what, what you're saying there exactly. Like, but, but I'm just asking the question, when you think of Paul and the law in general, <coughs> does he overthrow the law of Moses or does he uphold the law of Moses? He definitely says he upholds the law of Moses. And so I want to know how, because it definitely seems like a lot of times Paul's kind of saying like <laughs> law is canceled. Well, we're not under it. Uh, so, what, so how does he uphold the law of Moses by what he teaches? His teaching of justification by faith, he says that upholds the law of Moses. How? Yeah, I think that's one of the ways he does it. Well, so I'm not throwing out the law and its demands. I uphold them. And even the law's intent to condemn us and to expose our sin. Like, I do that in my preaching. Like, I am not throwing the law out the window. I am upholding its intent and its demands. I'm not saying the law is wrong or the law's demands are wrong. I'm saying I uphold it and I preach it and I let the law condemn people. <laughs> I uphold the law by that, by doing that. Okay, now, he upholds the law by upholding it as a rule of life for Christians. Okay, I would, I, I would agree with the trajectory of that and I would clarify a little bit on that, okay? Because I think Paul does not uphold the law of Moses as a binding law covenant for Christians. I should say we're not under the law in that sense. But where I would agree with it, I would say Paul does say that his teaching, that you look to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and God grants you his spirit, as you follow the spirit, you will fulfill the heart of the law of Moses in your life. And, and I think, so Paul is genius on the law. Like he, he, he realizes that if you look to the law of Moses for your strength and your hope, you will never be able to fulfill it. Because it has no power to produce in you what it's calling for. But if you'll let the law condemn you, drive you to its goal, to Jesus, you will trust in Jesus, get the Spirit, and you'll be following the Spirit and fulfilling the heart of the law, which is summarized in the, in the commands of love. Uh, so, so, I, so I think we're getting at the same, at the same thing ultimately there. But, but yeah, I think that's part of how his teaching upholds the law of Moses. So he upholds it by, 
not discarding its demands, but rather preaching them. It condemns people of their sin. It drives them to its intended goal, which is Christ, to trust in Christ. And then as God grants people his spirit and they follow the spirit, they end up fulfilling the heart of the law of Moses in their life. Um, what the law was always aiming for is actually fulfilled in the life of Christians. And this is the promise of the new covenant. That God will actually change the heart of his people so that they really do love the Lord their God with all their heart and love their neighbors as themselves. And the only way to do that is to look away from the law of Moses. <laughs> to, to, look to, where it's, to look to its goal, if you like, to, to Jesus. Uh, so, and, and, and we'll see maybe other things. But, but in all these ways, I think that Paul upholds the law of Moses. But he doesn't really say how in this verse. He just kind of makes this bold claim. I am definitely not overthrowing the law of Moses. Uh, my teaching is the way to uphold it. Now you get to chapter 4, and Paul, for one chapter, more or less, goes back to the story of Abraham to argue for all of this. The story of Abraham is the illustration of pretty much everything that he said. Because the gospel that he preaches was promised beforehand in Israel's scriptures. And he's not preaching something new. What he says is grounded and rooted in the story of Abraham. So he goes back to Abraham, chapter 4, verse 1. He says... What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Interesting how he uses our forefather. The little things. Paul does that a lot. He'll be writing to Gentile churches, and he'll talk about, like, don't you remember our, our forefathers? Yeah, like, I, I think Paul uh, wants us, even as Gentiles, to, like, embrace that these are our stories. The story of the Exodus is our story. Like it's, those are our ancestors, like in a sense. Like I, I think there's something there like with how he uses pronouns. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on that. But, but this is not the only time he, he does this in his writings. I think there's an, an, a desire to have us embrace these old stories. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, what happened with the Exodus. Like we should be telling those stories to our children. We should be like, those are our heroes. Those are our fathers. Those are their, and the failures of our parents. And those are the successes. And those are our kings. And I don't know. There's something, I think there's something there with that. But anyway, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Right? Because getting right with God through works does not exclude boasting. It gives you a ground for boasting. If Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. But then Paul's like, but not before God. That is not the way it is with God. Nobody is going to boast in the presence of God. And he says that's not what the scripture says. Because what does the scripture say? And this becomes his key text. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What text is that? Genesis 15, 6. You guys know it? And Paul will cite that text, I think, six times in this chapter. This is an exposition of Genesis 15, 6 and the Abraham story. Now, verse 4. Is now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So this is Paul kind of chasing down the idea that right standing with God is a gift. It does not come through works. And he explores that a bit. And he says, look, if, if you work for righteousness, then what's true? To the one who works, 
His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you work for someone, you like they're your employer, right? Like they, they are like over you. You're working for them. But once you work for them, then what? What do they need to do? Pay you, right? And if they don't pay you, then what? I don't know. That's not right <laughs> to say, you need to pay me. <laughs> That's not right. Uh, maybe you can't do anything about it. But the idea is you work for them and they now owe you. And this is one of Paul's observations. Like, this is like fundamental truth about God for Paul. God doesn't owe you anything. <laughs> and so this is one of his arguments, one of his thoughts about how, why right standing with God can't be through our works. Because if it has to do with our works, then that would mean God actually owes it to us. God doesn't owe you stuff. God does what he does as a gift. God shows mercy to whomever he wants to show mercy. He is not under obligation to you. He will not be indebted to you. That's not the way the relationship works, and works changes our relationship. So this is one of Paul's arguments. So like, if you're talking, in other words, if you're talking with people who, who basically trust in their own works for their standing with God, there's all kinds of stuff you can say to them. That, are, that Paul was really, he thought about this a lot. Like, if, if your standing with God is dependent on your works, then what? Then you'll never get right standing with God because you won't work enough. Then that would be violating the scriptures. Then it violates the idea that God's salvation is a gift, not something we earn. Then that you're saying you're, God's going to owe you something. That, that you're putting God in your debt. These are all things that Paul says. Like Almost every person you talk to who's religious thinks that in the end they're going to get right with God through their works. And Paul has all kinds of arguments against that. Nobody's getting right with God by their works. It says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, as what he's owed. But to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul sees this, he explores this from the life of Abraham, and then he goes to somebody else. He wants to add other support that this is how God worked in the Old Testament. And who does he go to? He goes to David. So go ahead and read, someone read verses 6 through 8. So Romans 4, 6 through 8. Okay. All right. So he, he looks at Abraham and he looks at David. It says, David also talks about this, about the blessing of having God count righteousness to you apart from works. And what does he quote? What text is there? Psalm 32. Probably also connected with Psalm 51, seems like, with the confession, you know, after the um, sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, what's the, what do you notice? So, so, so Paul says, David also talks about the blessing of having God count righteousness to you apart from works. But what does the quote focus on? Does it focus on God counting you as righteous apart from works? It uses the language of counting, but what, what is the point of these? God does not count your sin against you. See, so Paul says, I want, does anybody else talk about the blessing of having God count you as righteous apart from your works? Sure, David does. Look at what he says. How blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How blessed is the guy that the Lord won't count his sin against. See, in, in 
getting right with God, I think there's always like a double counting going on. Like one, God does not count what? Your sins against you anymore. And on the other hand, God counts you with right standing that you didn't earn. So like what you did earn, God does not count against you. And what you didn't earn, God counts to you. <laughs> That's what happens in justification. And uh, so, so he's looked at Abraham, he looks at David, but David, the, the difference with David though, is when David writes this, he's like the king of the Jews. He is a circumcised man. He is part of the Mosaic covenant. And so what does he do? Verse nine, he says, is this blessing then, the blessing that David talks about, only then for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? And where does he go for that? He goes right back to the story of Abraham. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, right? Where do we say that? We say that in Genesis 15, 6. How then was it counted to Abraham? We might think the answer is like by faith, but that's not what he's getting at here exactly. How then was it counted to Abraham? Was it counted to him as righteousness before or after he had been circumcised? And the answer? Not before. Wait a sec, what's the answer? Not after, but before, right? Not after, but before. What's the story going on? Uh, let's just go back and think through Genesis a bit. So when is Abraham called? Genesis 12. Okay, he's like 75 years of age. And then when uh, do we read about, you know, Genesis 15, verse 6, right? That's when uh, Abraham's been going out, Abram still, been going out to Sarai. They've been following the Lord for quite a while. They are not getting any younger and they still don't have any kids. And so by Genesis 15, uh, what is Abraham thinking? He's thinking of his faithful servant, Eliezer, and what is he starting to wonder? You know, like I, I'm going childless here, we're not having any kids. Maybe, maybe God's plan is to use Eliezer. And what does God say to him in Genesis 15? It's not gonna be through Eliezer. This child's gonna come from your own body. And Abram, look up at the stars and see if you can count them. See if you can number them. So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, when is, what happens in Genesis 16? Hagar. Okay, so thir about, uh, let's see, several years go by. Um, I don't know, maybe like a decade or something goes by between Genesis 15 and Genesis 16. Sometimes you don't pick this stuff up unless you really pay attention uh, to the stories in Genesis. Like it can just seem like this stuff is happening quickly. But years go by and Abraham and Sarah don't have any more, don't have a kid. Abraham believed the Lord was counting him as righteous and they still don't have a kid. Years go by, they don't have a kid. So then what happens? Sarah's like, hey, go do this. Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. This is all like sounding like uh, the fall, by the way. The way Moses writes that stuff, it's like, you know, so Abram went and took and all this kind of stuff. It's like, it's like the reliving of the fall in the life of Abram. But, but he goes and he has a child with Hagar. And then what happens? 13 years go by. Okay. Abram is now 99 years old in Genesis 17 when God appears to him and says, it's time to change your name to Abraham. And God tells him about circumcision. So it's like two decades 
in between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Okay, that's the point. So when Paul's saying, look, we say faith was counted to Abram as righteousness, how was it counted? Before or after? Yes, before. Two decades go by before he received circumcision, and so then the question is, well then, what was the point of circumcision? So you look at the text. He says, uh, verse 11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And then Paul makes this point. Like, he looks at that history and says God worked in that way for a specific reason. God worked in that historical pattern for a reason. The purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So I think what happens in a lot of Jewish writings is they looked at Abraham, the story of Abraham, as like the dividing point of history. You know, like kind of everything splits ways at Abraham and now you have like God's people running through through Abraham. But Paul looks at this very same story and how God worked in Abraham's life and what does he see? Abraham is the unifying point. It's in Abraham that you find the father of the uncircumcised and the father of the circumcised. Abraham was both a Jew and a Gentile. This is anachronistic, by the way, but it's, it's, there's something to it. Like Abraham was both a Jew and a Gentile. He was counted as righteous as a Gentile, and he became a Jew. But like he is the father of all people who follow in the footsteps of his faith. So, so Paul looks at the story of Abraham and sees like this unifying man, the man who unites both Jew and Gentile who believe. Now verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. Where did God promise that Abraham would inherit the world? Genesis 12. What did it say in Genesis 12? The Lord said to Abraham, go, go, go. And what would happen? I'll make of you a great nation. Make your name great. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay? Later, you know, I'll, I'll take you to a land. Or in that same text, I'll, I'll give you a land. The land will have boundaries and stuff. So, and, it, and that promise is reiterated a lot, but does it ever really say that Abraham would inherit the whole world? Like when it lays out the boundaries of the land that he would inherit, like there's like real boundaries there. But yet, Paul just is summarizing the story of Abraham. He says, Abraham got a promise that he would inherit the world. I think, I, I think that's probably Paul summarizing the whole trajectory of the Old Testament. <laughs> like that Abraham would inherit a land, but he would also inherit the nations. And his offspring would, his offspring, as you read through the stories, would one day become king of the world, rule over a kingdom that would never end. 
and, and I don't think there's any one text that you can point to about this, but I think this is Paul's kind of summary of the whole story. Like, Abraham and his offspring were promised the world. But that promise did not come through the law of Moses. Why did that promise not come through the law of Moses? Like, how do you know that? Promised Abraham, did it come through the law of Moses? No, why not? In Galatians, what does Paul say? Paul talks about the same thing. The promised Abraham did not come through the law of Moses. Why not? How do you know that? The law of Moses wasn't around. The law of Moses came 430 years later. The law of promise, promise didn't come to Abraham through the law. It came for, the law didn't even come for 430 years. So then he talks in Galatians about this. So why did God give the law and all that kind of stuff? This text, again, he says, God did not give the promise to Abraham through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of the promise, faith is null and the promise is void. What does that mean? Paul's saying God's promise does not come through the law. God's promise to Abraham doesn't come through the law. Why not? This gets a little tough, you know, as you read through it, but because if the people who are going to get the promise are only those who keep the law, then what? Okay, you say no one, no one will get it. He would, he's, Paul says faith wouldn't matter because it'd be through your obedience and through your works. Faith wouldn't matter, and the promise would be empty. You know, why does he say the promise would be empty? I think because no one would get it. God would be making this promise that no one would ever be able to get. And what is the promise to Abraham anyway? It's of many, many nations. And so if the promise comes through the law of Moses, the promise of many nations isn't going to happen. Because it'd be for the Jews only, not for the Gentiles too. So all of these things uh, play into it. It says, for the law brings wrath. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. The law of Moses does not bring about the promise that God made. It will not bring the fulfillment of the promise. Instead, what does the law bring? Wrath. Why? The law does not bring the blessing. The law brings wrath. The law does not bring the fulfillment of the promise. The law brings judgment. Why? No one can keep it. But why does it bring wrath? It has to do with that second phrase in verse 15, I think. I think this is Paul's explanation. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. All right, so what is a transgression? A breaking of the law. Okay. Um, what is sin? Disobedience? Okay. Uh, which is worse, sinning or transgression? Are they the same? Okay, so that's interesting. You say, well, John says sin is a transgression of the law, right? That is not a good translation of that. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, uh, yeah, so, so I, I, have, I memorized the same verse, and I thought about that verse. Uh, as a, but, but actually, for one thing, that's John. Uh, not Paul. Paul uses transgression in a specific way. But actually, John, uh, modern translations don't, use, don't say that. They say sin is lawlessness or something like that. Sin is anomia. Sin is lawlessness. It does not say sin is parabasis. Sin is transgression. Um, but, but in any event, in Paul, 
which is worse, sin or transgression? They are not the same thing to Paul. What is worse is transgression. What is a transgression? Okay, so think of this. All right, this will, this will be hard. Is every sin a transgression? No. Is every transgression a sin? Yes. What is a transgression? When you know. When you know what you're doing. Okay. Was there sin in the world before the law was given? Yes. Do you know how I know that? Because Paul says in the next chapter, sin was in the world before the law was given. It's like really, <laughs> really easy. Okay. Sin was in the world before the law was given. Okay. But transgression was not during that same time period. Transgression can only happen when there is a clearly revealed law. So who transgressed? You know the first person to transgress? Adam. Adam transgressed. Why? He was told specifically, do not eat from that tree. And what did he do? Blatant, willful rebellion against a clearly revealed law. Then, from the time of Adam to Moses, did people sin? Yes. Did they transgress? Not in the likeness of the transgression of Adam. But then the law of Moses comes, and it is given. And what is, okay? People, the murder was wrong beforehand. Adultery was wrong beforehand. But once the law of Moses is given, once God has clearly made known his will, now when you disobey it, are you sinning? Yes. But are you transgressing? Now, yes, you are transgressing. You are openly rebelling against clearly revealed commands. Which is worse? Transgression. By the way, on this, you might not, you might think that sounds cool, but that cannot be how Paul uses this language. But I'm telling you, this, Paul does not use the language of transgression that often. So let's see. I'm just limiting to Paul and... So here you got Romans 4.15, right? Okay, next, next one, okay. 5.13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not counted where there is no law. I think, it's, I think he's saying something like sin's not counted in the same way when there's no clearly revealed law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You'll see here, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It has to do with specifically violating the law of Moses. Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? It was added. Now, this text is, can be confusing because, now we'll see what we got here for translations. Why then was the law given? Uh, CSB. CSB. I like the CSB here. Okay, CSB. That was my, uh, my supervisor. He was involved in the, in the CSB. I like CSB here, okay? It was added for the sake of transgressions. Okay, there are two ways to take this text. Why was the law given? When I say it was added because of transgressions, what, what could that mean? It was added to stop transgressions. I do not think that, was that, that that is what that text is saying. The other way, because the preposition can be taken different ways. The other way to take it, it was added to produce transgressions, for the sake of transgressions. And that is consistent with Paul's teaching. The law came in 
to increase the trespass. The law was added for the sake of transgression, to produce transgressions. The law was added to make sin worse, to imprison humanity under sin so that the only way of escape would be to run to Jesus. And uh, yeah, and then you'll see uh, some of those actually are not the, the word transgressor. Uh, here, 1 Timothy 3, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became transgressor. Um, the transgression is connected with the garden and transgression is connected with the giving of the law at Sinai. Uh, so my take on this is when he's saying the law does not bring about the promise, the law brings wrath. Why? Because where there's no law, there's no transgression. Where there is law, there is transgression. The law makes our sins worse and therefore brings more of God's wrath. This is Paul's take, I think, on the law of Moses. Yeah? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think he actually uses trespass and sin interchangeably, and he uses transgression consistently in a different way. Yeah, kept my statutes and my laws and my commandments. Yeah. I think according to Paul, they did not transgress in the likeness of Adam. Yep, but it was not explicit. It was not clearly revealed like the command in the garden, or the Mosaic law. I think this is, and, and you might, you know, you can look through this, and, and this is probably new, but like I, I think that Paul uses parabasis language, transgression language, very consistently. It's always connected to the giving of the law of Moses or to the garden. And then in Romans 5, he specifically contrasts the time period between Adam and Moses and says they were sinning, but they were not transgressing in the likeness of the transgression of Adam. And I think this is how you explain this passage, actually. I think this is the explanation for why the law brings wrath, because the law makes the sins, which we already do, worse. It turns sin, which is bad, into open, blatant rebellion against God, which stirs up more of what? Wrath. And, and, and this applies to a whole idea in the Bible, that those who are given greater clarity, greater responsibility, are held to stricter judgment. And this is true, especially of, of Israel. All right, but at any event, all right, verse 16, uh, that is why it, the promise, the fulfillment of it, the blessing, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham as the father of us all. So, so in, in Paul's view, if the if the promises made to Abraham depend on the law, nobody would get them. But that's why they depend on faith, in order that they could rest on God's grace, not on us, but on God's. And then they could be guaranteed to all his offspring. Then he gets to verse 17. He looks back to the story of Abraham. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Where does, Paul, where does, where does uh, that quote come from? I have made you the father of many nations. That is not chapter 15, it is 17, okay? 
So, so God says to Abram, I've made you the father of many nations. When does he do that? He does that when he changes his name. No longer will you be called Abram, which means like what? Exalted father. I'm going to change your name now at 99 years of age to Abraham, father of a multitude. Great time for a name change when you've got one son and he's illegitimate. <laughs> you know, everybody meets up with, with him. What's your name? My name is Abraham. Oh, great. How many kids do you have? One through my wife's maid. But notice what he says. As is written, I have made you the father of many nations. How many nations are there when God says that? Zero. How many nations have come from Abraham by that point? None. He's got one son, Ishmael. And yet God says to him, time to change your name because I have made you a father of many nations. I mean, God is talking about things that don't exist as though they do. And in the presence of that God that Abraham believed in, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope, he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Have you ever think about the story? Abraham is 99. Sarah is 89 years of age. They are old. <laughs> they are really old. And God says, I want both of you to change your names. And God tells Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. He's talking about them as if they, like, exist. And what does Paul point out? Abraham was standing in the presence of God when God said this to him. And so what did Abraham do? He believed. What would it take to believe that? What would you have to know about God? You would have to believe that God can bring things into existence that do not exist to believe that. But also, what would you have to believe? Look at verse 19. It says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, which, by the way, barrenness is a fine translation, but in, in the Greek, that, that is the word deadness. Okay? So, it says, no distrust made and waver concerning the promise of God. So, Abraham, this text is saying, Abraham did not ignore the facts, like on the ground. Okay? He looked at his own body. And he thought, I am as good as dead. And then he looked over at his wife. And he thought, she's as good as dead. But God is saying, I've made you the father of many nations. What would he have to believe about God for this to happen? He actually trusts God that this is going to happen. What can you conclude about his faith in God? He believed that God is a God who can do what? Who can give life to the dead. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And, that, and that's a great thing about faith. Trusting God brings God glory. Because you are saying, God, I believe you. You will keep your promises. You can do everything that you say. And he, and he grows strong in his faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
That is why his faith was counted in as righteousness, because he had a real faith. He really trusted God. And, and I, I like to think about, like, um, you know, it, we, we, we look at this text, and, and obviously Paul is pointing a- putting Abraham forward as an example for us, right, to follow. There's no doubt about that. Where we read this and we're like, wow, this guy was a great man of faith. And he was. But you read the stories in Genesis, and the New Testament tends to look, uh, look back at Abraham with really, like, a positive. And, and this is encouraging to us, but the New Testament writers often look back at the Old Testament people, and they're like, Isaac did a great job. And then I'm, like, reading the story of Genesis, and I'm like, oh, he kind of had some pretty big problems. You know, see, Abraham, you know, he had some big problems. David, New Testament writers, and I think this is encouraging to us, that God looks at the totality of the life, you know, and doesn't, like, just keep hanging on to the, the, like, we look at it, and we're like, man, look at what David did. Look at Bathsheba. And I think the New Testament writers acknowledge that, but they're also like, this guy trusted the Lord. This guy loved the Lord. You know, same thing with Abraham. Abraham had his ups and downs in his life. But, but so I think Paul is point, putting him forward as an example for us to follow in terms of trusting the Lord. What kind of faith is it that God credits as righteousness? It's real faith. It's like real trust in God and in his promises that God counts as righteousness. But but at the end of the day, the thing that makes Abraham's faith meaningful is, what, is the person he was trusting. Like, if you look at this text, it's, a, it's that he was trusting God who can give life to the dead and who can call things into existence that don't exist. That's what really matters. And, and you could, so, so like I could, uh, you know, I've got an old car at my house, Toyota Corolla. Blue, rusty, beautiful, love it. You know, standard, I like it, I don't know. I don't know if you guys do standard, stick shifts, whatever. No. Okay, so I've got this car. Let's say I, you know, I get home this weekend, I walk out and I see my uh, Toyota Corolla out there. And I see uh, one, of my, one of my guys from my church. He's out there messing around with the tires and like the hubcaps and kind of stuff. And I'm like, and I'm like, hey, what are you doing? And he just like looks at me and runs away. That was really strange, you know? So, like, I, I get in the car, and I'm, like, driving the car, and, I'm th- and what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about, like, what was he doing? Was he, like, messing around with my tires? Are my tires going to fall off? Like, was he, like, loosening the lug nuts on this thing? You know, and I, and I, but I drive it, and I get to the destination. turns out he didn't do any of that. Okay. I don't know what he was doing, but he didn't do any of that. So there I am. I'm driving, and my trust in my car is not particularly strong, okay? But the car is still reliable, and it gets me there. Contrast that with, I never see the person out there messing around with my car, and he really did mess up my car. I go into this car, and I fully trust this car, and I drive it, and what happens? My wheels fall off, and it doesn't get me there. I like this illustration because it it illustrates that it's not necessarily the strength of our faith that is the defining issue. There are lots of people in this world who have really strong faith in the wrong thing, and it won't deliver. What ultimately matters is who you're trusting. And I think Paul is pointing, he's putting Abraham forward as an example for us to follow, but I think the heart of it is Abraham is trusting in the right object. He's trusting in the right God who can really give life to the dead. 
who really can call things into existence that do not exist. And so I think we want to follow Abraham's faith, but, we, but more than that, we want to follow trusting in the same God as Abraham. Anyway, verse uh, 23. This is Paul's point, though, of this for us. He says, but the words that was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone. Which, if you think about that, did Abraham ever read those words? Like, just thinking historically here. Okay, like, who wrote those words down? Moses. There's a lot of time between Abraham and Moses. Abraham never read Genesis 15, 6. We read it. <laughs> Abraham never. He never read, Abraham believed the Lord and it's counted to him as righteousness. Those words weren't written down just for him or just for him alone. Those words were written down for us. Because why? It will be counted to us who believe in the God of Abraham, the God who can raise the dead, the God who did raise the dead, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was handed over for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. We follow in the footsteps of Abraham. We trust like he did, but we trust in the same God that he does, in the God who could give life to the dead. That's how Abraham could believe the promise that he would be able to have children, that God would fulfill his promises through Abraham, and we trust in the God who has raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, the one who was handed over for our trespasses, which again, I think that is from Isaiah 53. That is Paul alluding to the servant who was handed over for our trespasses. We trust in the God who handed over his son to death for us and who raised him up for our righteousness. And so since we trust in the same God, the very words that were said about Abraham apply to you as well. You trust the Lord and God counts you as righteous.